that I am here tonight is a testament to the dedication of generations before me. Women and men who believed so fiercely in the promise of equality, liberty, and justice for all. Childcare was already hard to find before the pandemic, and now parents are stuck. No idea when schools can safely reopen and even fewer childcare options. And the way I see it, big problems demand big solutions. What we do these next 76 days will echo through generations to come. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Steve Bannon, Chief Carney, has been arrested. Federal prosecutors, that's right, nabbed Bannon at everyone's favorite Javert joint, the Southern District of New York. Remember, that's the oldest district in the land, a Trumpcast favorite. It's older than the Supreme Court. And it first convened on November 3rd, 1789, and has been collaring baddies like Bannon ever since. And by the way, you know the first trader they nabbed in SDNY 1789 probably looked like Steve Bannon, except in a shabby red Tory coat. And okay, I'm getting carried away because bye, Bannon. Oh, and they also got him for the right thing. It's not for trying to build a wall to lock out refugee toddlers, not for crimes against humanity, because that's just elitist, snowflake, kind of EU stuff. But they got him for screwing over the white nationalists who wanted to build that wall. Good old Bannon, the president's former campaign advisor, so he's pretty close to Trump. He is in handcuffs today, along with three other carnies for defrauding donors of hundreds of thousands of dollars in the border wall fundraising campaign. See, it's the corruption, not the racism that will take them down. And while that is sick in its own way, Bannon is still in an orange jumpsuit with long pants and no cargo pockets for today. He's also, if he ever lands behind bars for real, the only person in all this who might look better after some time in the clink. A little commissary userin for redness relief never hurt nobody. And once again, I say this as a rosacean American, so no offense intended. But there's other good news. And this is good news, but there's pain in it. Watching the Democratic National Convention last night, Hillary, Obama, Kamala Harris, I was, like a lot of people, fighting back tears. I actually successfully fought them back. It's a, it's a habit learned in the last four years. It's not the time, in my case, for fully felt pain. Not even now. There's too many miles left in this. But I did realize when Obama sighed last night, did you catch that? It's so rare for him, but he sighed that there's a collective exhale in our future. Maybe not in November, maybe not even in January, but there will be a moment one day when we can stop winding up our grief like thread on a spool about the lives lost at the border and to COVID and to diseases of despair, including suicide and addiction and in Puerto Rico and also the jobs lost and the brains lost to disinformation and Trump's lies and the hope lost to white supremacy and a rapist president who subjugates women by mauling them and the relative harmony of our whole socius that's been lost to anguish and terror and mutual contempt. With Obama's sigh, I realized that with every suggestion that this boot might one day be off our throat, I become slightly more able to actually experience what a siege 
this has been. It's not quite hope. But I'm told that this is something hostages feel when the end is in sight. And I know this sounds dramatic, but there is a quality where some numbness and fighter pilot vigilance drops for a second and emotions begin to unspool. So today, after all the repression and not crying, it seems clear that one day, maybe we can all breathe out in one of those rowdy yoga sighs and begin to take stock of the losses without flinching. Today, my guest is Ben Rhodes. He's the host of Pod Save the World and the new podcast, Missing America. He's a contributor to MSNBC and author of the forthcoming The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. Ben and I are going to talk about how the last four years have been for him, not easy, and what's coming next. And if you're a Plus member, stick around for more of my conversation with Ben Rhodes in a bonus segment after the credits. Ben Rhodes, welcome to Trumpcast. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm very happy to be here. I was worried that you might say no because I have a close relationship to the author of a piece about you in, in 2016, was it? Yes, just a little uh, magazine profile, right? Little magazine profile, exactly. <laughs> you came off great. It was about you, yeah. know, you eating salad at Mr. Chow's in LA, the typical celebrity profile. But uh, no, it was very strange, strange piece about your... I think you were like a great mastermind of selling the fraudulent and very, very dangerous Iran deal to the, to the press. Yes. And the, the piece was, was criticized. Um, and, (laughs) um, (laughs) but so were you. Yes, I was. So Uh, how have you recovered since that effort to encapsulate your role in the Obama, Obama administration? What's the Trump administration been like for you, whether you want to start at that piece or that dreadful 2016 summer or not? Well, I I mean, I can start at that piece. It's kind of interesting uh, because, look, I mean, you know, this was a New York Times magazine piece. And, you know, what he basically did, right, is he he turned me into a a genius, (laughs) like far beyond my own faculties, so as to then suggests that I was the kind of evil mastermind behind duping everybody into accepting the Iran deal. Um, You're kind of like he, a hipster Kissinger in it. Yeah, I'm the hipster Kissinger. And, and he literally makes that juxtaposition. And, you know, what he ended up constructing was like lots of different things I'd said about lots of different topics, all shoehorned into this idea that I'd misled people about the Iran deal. When in fact, actually, I believed all the things I said about the Iran nuclear deal. I, I continue to make the same arguments. Uh, he just happened to not agree with them. But the thing is, it touched some third rails because obviously I was already a bit of a right wing villain. You know, I was kind of like the the junior partner to Susan Rice and yeah. the, every Benghazi conspiracy theory. So those people already hated me. And this was like chum in the water for them. And then Obama, you know, and me to some extent had, you know, tweaked the kind of foreign policy establishment a good bit. And and Obama had said some things, don't do stupid shit, which was seemingly a non-controversial statement that you don't do stupid <laughs> shit in foreign policy and people took yeah. great offense to it, um, which tells you something. Yep. And and so th- those people piled on too. And so what ended up happening is, yeah, like the that period of time, you know, I was put through the ringer, both from the right wing and from kind of a lot of establishment in Washington. And, you know, I was super busy at the time, so I didn't actually fully appreciate how much that backed up on me until I left government. And then I realized, like, it actually, it, that stuff has a toll, a kind of a mental toll, and you get kind mm-hmm. of c- closed off, and you get distrustful, and you you feel, you know, you just feel like shit, you know? Um, yeah. 
And and what was interesting though about this experience, I mean, there's lots of ways to break it down, but just on your question, what was part of what's interesting is that Trump basically gave life to every criticism of me and Obama. Like mm-hmm. everything they'd said about the Iran deal, everything they'd said about Paris, everything they said about the Cuba opening, well, they got to do whatever they wanted, right? <laughs> and so mm-hmm. so, you know, the Trump presidency is the manifestation of my worst nightmare in the sense that like Think of if your worst troll in life becomes the president of the United States. Right. And, and, then, and also yeah. very determined. I mean, not all my trolls, I think, are determined. They're not fixated on me enough that they would want to just reverse everything I've yeah. done from the color of my drapes to, you know, my hairstyle. But because of Trump's fixation on Obama as his white whale, he he did want to reverse everything. So don't do stupid shit becomes... Let's see. What is it again? Reversing it? Do stupid shit. Yeah, yeah. Do as much stupid shit as possible. <laughs> as yeah. Exactly. Max yeah. out on the stupid shit. And then also, you know, reverse the Iran deal because yeah. it has Obama's name on it and so on. And I agree with you. If, you know, I think I tweeted one time, like one thing we have learned from this time have been the virtues of the Iran deal now that we're without it. That was accomplishing a lot in the region. So since since 2016, yeah. d- did you expect the deal to to really fall apart? Because it had some support on the right. And I think at the very beginning of Trump, you might th- have thought he's got his eye focused on uh, the southern border or these other things that he'd really run on. And in spite yeah. of the Michael Flynn commitment to stamping out radical Islamic terrorism, they uh, maybe wouldn't do this. Uh, take away the Iran deal. I mean, what? How did that evolve for you when you saw well, it's really going down? Well, so when when Flynn, uh, you know, got ousted after 15 days, there was about a year when McMaster was the national security advisor and yeah. Mattis is at defense, where they were clearly doing everything they could to save the Iran deal. They didn't want the risk of leaving it, which, by the way, was ironic because Mattis was critical of the Iran deal and came out. Uh, it just shows you when you're actually in, in power, you might prefer to have a, an arms control agreement in place. Yeah. So I actually thought there was a fighting chance that the thing could survive. But, you know, to Trump, it was it's interesting how the Iran deal was so central to just kind of their narrative about Obama and his foreign policy and his weakness and his coddling of, quote unquote, radical Islam. You could tell that Trump wasn't going to give it up. And then when John Bolton uh, became national security advisor, Mm-hmm. then you know the thing is toast. Yeah. Part of what's been interesting in watching it play out is the arguments that we made that they called dishonest at the time were mm-hmm. essentially that it's either this deal or the Iranians advance their program. If you leave the deal, you're going to strengthen the hardliners in Iran and you're going to risk war. And and like right. literally, all those arguments that they said were so dishonest and said I constructed a totally fake echo chamber to make those arguments... Like, they've all happened. Uh, You know, Iran has restarted its nuclear program. The -hmm. hardliners are clearly in charge there. That's why you've had much more provocative Iranian actions across the Middle East. And we've been at the brink of war with Iran, like, twice, including, bizarrely, during COVID. I mean, it seems like forever ago. But in January, instead of focusing on getting this virus under control, Donald Trump was assassinating an Iranian general and literally inviting uh, T-LAMs, uh, sorry, ballistic missiles raining down on uh, uh, an American facility in Iraq. So that's how close we've gotten already. Mm-hmm. And, and and it has been very painful to watch because it was very predictable that this is what would happen if they pulled out. 
Now, of course, reversing anything you did, and I, I think I said this beforehand, but we're on the roughly the four-year anniversary of the Republican National Convention that nominated Trump, but at which also Newt Gingrich cited the piece about <laughs> your, I don't know, if it, it was very strange, and it was at the end of yeah. his, you know, he, he cited the piece in which you were this, I was going to say Svengali, but it was something more intense, Rasputin yes, to, yes. Uh, to Barack Obama, and that you had yeah, sold a bill of goods to the American people who, you know, were, would have all opposed the deal, and this was part of the, the thing that, that Trump would rectify. Okay, so uh, turning on the Obama administration, turning all that on its head, doing stupid shit with abandon was one of Trump's goals in getting out of the deal. It, what, what relationship did it bear his contempt for the deal, how did it fit into his relationship with President Vladimir Putin of the Russian Federation, in your view? That's an interesting question. You know, I, I think that the, the Russians obviously were part of the Iran nuclear agreement and, and you know, supportive of it to an extent. But when people always ask me, like, what did Putin want? You know, like, why did he put all this investment into Trump? Did he want to get the sanctions lifted uh, over Ukraine? Uh, it's not that. Like what Vladimir mm. Putin wants is to put the U.S. basically out of business as a superpower. You know, mm -hmm. he wants us divided from our allies. He wants us distracted uh, from whatever it is that Vladimir Putin wants to be doing. And he wants us to discredit democracy generally because democracy itself is a threat to Vladimir Putin because he doesn't want democracy to come to Russia. And this fixation that the United States has with Iran is very good for Russia and China. <laughs> because think about how illogical it's going to look to history, that the most powerful country in the history of the world, which is what the United States was after the Cold War, I, I think that's a was now, was completely obsessed with like a medium-sized country in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. you know, not China, not Russia. You yeah. Know? yeah. So, so, to see the U.S. completely divided from our European allies and, and the Iran deal, leaving the Iran deal was a major rupture with France, the United Kingdom and Germany. Mm -hmm. That's in Vladimir Putin's interest. Seeing the United States like fixated on Iran and and at the constantly at the brink of war in the Middle East. And, you know, here we are in 20, you know, 20 years after 9-11 and, 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 and we're still you know, preoccupied with this one region of the world. That's all to Vladimir Putin's interest because mm -hmm. then, you know, the rest of the world is an open field for him just as it's an open field for China. What has Donald Trump done to fortify Europe against the rise of, of nationalism and authoritarianism? What has Donald Trump done to model democracy as something that is an attractive force mm -hmm. <laughs> so that allies of Vladimir Putin's like the guy in Belarus who's under pressure right now yes. feel some heat? You know, this is what Vladimir Putin wants. He wants a discredited, demoralized, distracted America that is not setting a democratic example. Yeah. I mean, the, the moral authority that we, I think, squandered on election day, um, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I had um, Asla Bali, who is a friend of mine who teaches at UCLA, was I think my first guest when I when I started hosting the show. And she, it was you know November tenth or eleventh or something, and she said, um, "The Pax Americana is over, and yeah, you know, we need to take a breath and say, what are our." commitments now as as Amer as individuals as citizens and what are our kind of professional commitments or you know political commitments now that that has dissolved and i think it, it, pax americana is just a, a great uh, a phrase to revive there because we know we lost a lot 
uh, on that day and in the last four years, but it's hard to put our fingers on it exactly, right? Like, did, like yeah. we didn't have we didn't have harmony in the homeland, even in, in 2015, you know, the idea that we're polarized, you know, tell that to the birthers um, who've been at this a long time or the truthers or whoever else and uh, Chris Kobach. And then the idea that we are, you know, that we've lost moral authority. I mean, I think, you know, at least the Islamic world thought that we were, you know, morally bankrupt back then. And, and I yeah. think Europe was suspicious of us, although, you know, it's, it's hard to say, but in any case, Pax Americana is something that was just, an article of faith with with us as we yeah. came of age, um, you and me, and does seem to be kind of gone now. So I want to just talk about the dovetailing of your own professional and political commitments since 2016. So maybe just take us back to election night. Did it instantly dawn on you, as it did on Professor Bali, that you you would have to make some changes and you'd have to find out where to be most effective? And also, what were you most afraid of? Yeah, it did. And, and, and I, I, you know, the way I'd sum up kind of the version of uh, what you said, which I agree with, is I always try to explain to Americans as someone who travels a lot. Um, it's not the fact that Donald Trump is president that is so problematic. It's the fact that we elected Donald Trump president. Mm -hmm. And that's something that can never be undone. And, and it it calls into question everything about American leadership in the world, because we have this this awesome power. The world has kind of, not only because of our military, but the world has kind of generally looked to us to set the direction, even if they don't like our policies and they hated the Iraq war and they, they blamed us for the financial crisis. Yeah. But in a way, Trump is worse because it just showed such a profound irresponsibility that we would let someone like that get to the highest, most powerful office in the history of the world. Yeah. And, and I knew that election night. And, and, and I, I knew I'd seen the kind of radicalization that had taken place in the Republican Party over the eight years of Obama. Had you? Yeah. I had no faith whatsoever that these I was not I didn't even bother trying to make the, the you know, well, let's hope for his success because I knew he wasn't going to try to succeed. Like mm -hmm. the, 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 the idea that we were supposed to pretend that he was going to he was going to somehow you know, get some things right, but something's wrong. And this guy is an extreme authoritarian racist force that is emblematic of the very worst aspects of America <laughs> elevated to the highest office. And that's what I felt. And so for me, I, you know, it was, I knew I was going to have to kind of rethink, you know, whatever. I hadn't given a lot of thought to what I was going to do anyway, but I knew that everything I did was going to have to add up to some form of activism. And so for me, since leaving government, I've, you know, helped Obama set up his international foundation, which is basically focused on training progressive civil society actors around the world. I've got my own podcast with Crooked Media, which is basically a weekly effort to kind of hold Trump's feet to the fire and show people what's happening. Which I've, is fantastic. We're shoulder to shoulder on that. Thank you. Yeah, no. And it, well, but there can't be enough voices, you know. Mm -hmm. I've done, I have an NGO, uh, National Security Action, that helps kind of support progressive messaging and foreign policy in the US, but also increasingly the space I've moved into is trying to build connections between progressive politicians in the US and Europe and other countries that are going through this, like India and Brazil, right? It, the idea that the far right is very well coordinated around the world and, and we're not. Um, yeah. and, and I'm working on a, a book basically that 
tries to answer the question, how did all these people get in power around the world and, and, and what do we need to do about it? And how do we have to think about our identity? Forget our foreign policy, our identity as Americans. Like, who are we? Because until we figure that out, we're not going to figure out the foreign policy. So, so for me, it's been writing, podcasting, working with former President Obama and doing this progressive politics. And then all these things I just kind of put together into this podcast series I just did, Missing America, which is basically like, let me take you around the world and show you what I've seen the last few years, which is nationalism in Europe, authoritarianism in China, disinformation everywhere, sectarianism in India, the uh, forever war in the Middle East, climate change, you know, refugee crisis. Like this, this is what is happening, you know, because mm-hmm. of the complete collapse of America. So to me, I've done a bunch of different stuff, but they're all about one thing. <laughs> they're about the fact that if Trump and these collection of people around the world win, then everything I care about, forget the Iran deal, everything is out the window. But if we can at least get a foothold, then we have a fighting chance. Do you think there's a version, if you accept the idea that something like Pax Americana is one of the things we've lost, if not the major thing, is there a version of a kind of more modest fallen America. I don't mean isolationist, yep. but I yep. mean like Britain and post-empire that is, yeah, if not quite protectionist and isolationist, r- r- right? But but Britain pre-Brexit. So uh, a worldliness um, without any kind of empire, imperial ambitions, even for some kind of moral case. You know, certainly no nation building, but also no, we must export American values or, you know, teach the world to act in our image, not just because there's some imperialness to it, but because it's not possible anymore. Because, you know, Walt Schaub says we lost our ethics program. We can't teach ethics abroad anymore, you know? Yeah. So I I think that there's room for for, for this in two ways. And, and, And first of all, well, one of the things that was interesting to me is, you know, for this this podcast I did. I talked to a lot of progressive activists around the world, and they want America <laughs> to be engaged around the world. You know, it, like the people on the pretty far left in places too. And here's why: there, there's not. I think the the age of American hegemony is over, and and a lot of that is to the good, although some of that is 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 to the bad. But mm-hmm. there's not like some alternative waiting here. There's there's Russia and China. You know, <laughs> there's kind of a Russia wants kind of a world without rules, right? And China wants a world where they can basically, you know, build stuff, sell stuff, and 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 make sure that you know inconvenient things like democracy are kept as far away from them as possible. So there's there's basically a vacuum. So it's not like with the fall of the British Empire, we were you know ready to step in. And frankly, so so there's no one to take the place that America used to to the role we used to play. And there's a need for somebody. I mean, we saw with COVID, like there was just nobody kind of running the play for the world. Nobody right. saying, "That's right." Well, here's what you're going to do, and, and here's how we're going to, you know, harmonize travel restrictions, and here's, you know, the, the health guidelines that we want to model that other people can do. Like, there's a role for the United States to be a very, if not the most influential country in the world, without being a hegemon, right? And to me, what that looks like is like no more, <laughs> no more of these wars, right? Like, like 9/11 period is over, like dismantle the architecture of this war on terror and yes, have a degree of humility. And and I'd, I'd extend that to like let, let the regime change policies, you know, mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. Iran's and Cuba's and Venezuela's like that stuff like should be over. Right. But I think there's two things we can do. One is we can be the country that can try to mobilize collective action, you know, 
climate change, right? Like, how do we construct a Paris Agreement? Like, the U.S. had to kind of get in under the hood and do that with a whole bunch of countries. Or if there's a pandemic, who's kind of making, you know, in Ebola, what we did is essentially say, okay, we'll build some infrastructure in West Africa. And, you know, you guys, you know, the French, you take Guinea and and we'll focus on Liberia and the Brits will focus on Sierra Leone. And then we basically went past the hat around and got like 10,000 healthcare workers to fly there. And like, that's the good part of what America can do. That's a perfect example of how America's global values um, are, uh, you know, when they're, it's, it's like you said, don't do stupid shit becomes controversial. Well, when keeping people alive in West <laughs> yeah, Africa yeah. who have a contagious disease, you don't yes. need to be, you can be entirely self-interested when you're highly contagious, yeah, highly contagious disease and, and fatal. You, when when you're fighting a, uh, a a pandemic, you know it should at least be in our baseline interest to survive as a species. And yes. yet, as we've seen, <laughs> we with should Trump, agree on that. Yeah, we should agree on that. Um, as uh, as we've seen with Trump, you know, uh, we had Catherine Ebon on the other day talking about the so-called democide, Jared Kushner's kind of plan to let the blue states, you know, just implode with the disease. And uh, you know, when you're not committed. <laughs> You know, when you have some idea that there are like smoking sections to the country and non-smoking sections and that the smoke won't travel or when it comes to Africa that, you know, you can just let let countries, let shithole countries burn and the rest of us are fine. It is it's, it's hard to even call that a value unless the value unless the value is kind of a pro death position. And, you know, what you all what the Obama administration accomplished with Ebola is, you know, while creative, also, of course, you know, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, yeah no, right? it, blindingly it, yeah, obvious. Exactly. You know? Yeah, it, sh- it should be routine that you would do that. And, you know, I think part of to your point, like the, the Trumpism, the collection of views that add up to Trumpism, what's so bizarre about them is, yes, there's there's root, you know, deeply rooted kind of racism and nationalism in it. But like, it's also just kind of a collection of, of opinions that people who've consumed right-wing media in the United States for 20 years would have that yeah. doesn't really add up to anything. This <laughs> is not like, you know, yeah. other than kind of this self-defeating, you, you know, COVID is an example of this. Like th- there's nothing that suggests that a, a racist nationalist wouldn't still want to not let this many people die from a virus. But like, you know, you know I, wait, I, I kind of want to push back on that because I've been trying to figure out why listening to the David Duke podcast, the latest slow burn from Slate, which is fantastic, that well, how racism and corruption and ultimately a kind of, uh, you know, maybe a lost cause, men, you know, mentality yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right, that, 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 you know, there's a hallmark of the former Confederacy that goes with diseases of despair and a kind of self-destruction that you see yeah, and you know yeah. this is kind of shit life syndrome That's which is right. like yeah. right and the, and the rise in suicides among middle class men in in white men in red counties red districts actually what comes to mind is robin d'angelo's book white fragility about these counties that are so beset with misery and it seems like she tells an amazing story of her reason for writing the book which is that she grew up very poor unwashed she couldn't keep clean she had food insecurity and her whole confidence and it was it was considerable was predicated on the idea that even the cleanest black person was dirtier than she was as actually a dirty, dirty person, like unwashed clothes. And 
I think, you know, when Obama becomes president, there's a little bit of, I am nothing anymore, you know, in, 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 in that's all I had before this. That's all I predicated my confidence on. And without that, who cares? It's time for, I mean, the disease of, de- of despair, our opiate, our addiction, alcoholism, suicide, uh, deep depression. And there's a lot to further. I mean, I keep thinking of what you said. Don't do, what is it? Don't, Don't do, do stupid dumb shit. shit. Yeah, yeah, Don't do yeah. stupid shit turns into do stupid shit. Yeah. Or, you know, wear a 50 cent, you know, paper mask against a lethal virus turns into, no, don't wear a mask. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, how can I, th- I do the opposite? I think it's the death drive. Yeah, I think you're right. And there are a couple of things I'd say about this. Like one is the collapse does matter. And, and you know, part of my, you know, part of what I think has happened in global politics since 2008 financial crisis is like everybody lost confidence in everything. You know, the institutions of democracy, of globalization, this, you know, the system was rigged, etc. And that the only belonging that was offered, particularly to to white people in this country, and frankly, in, in across Europe and, and a lot of these places where I, I don't want to call it populism, I call it, you know, authoritarian nationalism is gaining traction, is because someone comes along and says, well, you know what, everything is falling apart. And I'm going to offer you this this sense of belonging, right? Mm. That is mm-hmm. is somehow deeply familiar to you. It's It's in your it's ingrained in your memory, your historical memory, the us versus them thing, you know, like, yeah, you know, you can be on the winning team and, it, and and everything could be collapsing around you. But at least, you know, you're on the winning team. You know, you're on team Trump, you're on team Bolsonaro, you're on team Orban, you're on team Putin, whatever it is. Right. I think that's a big piece of it. And then I think, you know, Obama. So I think that's already happening right after 08. And like the, the Tea Party is an early manifestation of it here. People enraged about the financial crisis turned to a Koch Brothers funded top down movement because it offered this sense of belonging. And then with Obama, I think a very important point that I experienced is what drove people the most insane about Obama was when he was successful. Like if Obama had fallen on his face, that would have been fine. The first black president is a disaster. And and what drove people the most insane? Obamacare, the Iran deal, like big achievements, you know, the Paris Climate Accord, like, like, and, and like his capacity to succeed as a black president was was even more offensive to Trump and a lot of his supporters than even just him getting elected. Yeah, and I think you're right. Like, it does lead to a burn it all down approach, but it's also the one that I think still has these these eccentric tropes. You know, I mean. Yes, uh, of, nicely of said. Far right media, and because I say to someone to go all the way back to where we began, like Newt Gingrich referencing like a magazine profile of me, like they all think that everybody is is in on the same conspiracy theories. You know that that we like Obamagate. They just say a word, and I don't even I don't I'm a character in it, and I don't know what it is. But they all just kind of intuitively understand that it is the thing that is terrible. And and so I think there's like this kind of mixture, as you say, of burn it down, but then also just like limitless conspiracy theory. Yes. So I guess I want to go back to your now study for your, you know, partly for your book of rising authoritarianism in the in these other countries. And since Belarus is top of mind, do you think that you know, when you had this crushing realization that we had elected Trump, that's sort of true. However you define 
we. And I know we're not meant to dismiss the Electoral College, but there has been an uncanniness about Trump's, an uneasiness about his legitimacy that it's sort of like, like the Aaron Sorkin, like deep down, we don't talk about it at cocktail parties. Like you'll, yeah. you know, you start to sound like Louise Mensch or something. Yeah. Um, if you start, if you, if you, if you rail on about yeah. illegitimacy. Russian interference. And yeah. Russian yeah. interference. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and also, you know, good old gerrymandering and voter suppression and yep. some of the discontinuities in the, uh, in, the, in the voting. And, of course, the fact that the majority, an overwhelming majority, voted for Trump's opponent. So when we're taking the temperature of the country, you know, it's weird to say, you know, the most important thing about Lance Armstrong is he was such a great cyclist that he won all those races. You know, that you're leaving out this major thing that where, you know, there's hacks, there's, in this case, Russian interference. And I, I don't know, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, is the, has the illegitimacy question sort of dogged you through this time? And also, it helps me when I sort of read the country, especially now when Trump's approval is so far down. But when I sort of read the country to think, you know, he he cheated his way to power. And that means that most of us, I mean, and it, and most of us went out for Hillary Clinton, you know, yeah, yeah. That, like just when we're trying to understand the country, maybe we should try to understand why so many of us supported Hillary Clinton. And it was a referendum on Obama. We were going to have, we were ha all wanted another uh, four years of, you know, Obama. And that, I think, may be a little harder on Russia. Yeah. And that, I think, was really incredibly interesting. And, you know, somehow we just jumped into, well, I guess the country's all red, and now we need to talk to everyone about their economic insecurity and kind of feel their feel out their racism. Yeah. We got to go to the West Virginia diner to talk to some voter who hasn't voted for a Democrat in 50 years. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. I mean, you know, I traveled a lot around the world when my, my memoir came out and I'd get these questions and I'd always earnestly explain that, you know, Barack Obama had a 60% approval rating at the end, that Hillary got more votes, that the, there wasn't this dramatic shift in public opinion in the US. I, I, you know, here's how I'd look at it. One way to understand what's happened in the US is to look at other countries. So let, let's look at Hungary. Mm -hmm. In 2010, mm -hmm. Viktor Orban gets elected prime minister of Hungary, riding a wave of right-wing populism in response to the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. He then sets up a corrupt system where he enriches some cronies who then fund his politics. They buy up the media and turn it into propaganda organs for, for propaganda organs for Orban. Then he packs the courts with right-wing judges. Then he redraws the parliamentary districts so that even though Viktor Orban doesn't get a majority of votes in Hungary, he has a two-thirds majority in the parliament. He changes the voting franchise to make it harder for some people to vote and extending voting rights to people outside of Hungary who are ethnic Hungarians. I could go on. Oh, and by the way, becomes very cozy with Vladimir Putin, who has billions of dollars of economic interest in Hungary, right? Yep. And yep. as I heard this story told to me by some of the Hungarians I talked to for, for my podcast and my book, I'm thinking, well, the Tea Party is the right-wing populist movement that gets a foothold of elective power. We had the redistricting here. We had uh, the the campaign, you know, the complete Citizens United disaster that opened the, the, the door to unregulated dark money in our politics. You have the cronies, the Koch brothers and the Sheldon Adelsons of the world spending billions of dollars to distort our politics. You've got the right wing judges like we think that we're immune to this stuff because we're Americans. 
but we're not. The same stuff that happened in Hungary happened here. And what was it about? It was about allowing a minority to govern a majority of a country because they have all these key levers of power in the courts and the way people vote and the way people get information. And, you know, that's what has happened. And I think where the, the breakdown was, therefore, wasn't like a massive public opinion shift. I think the breakdown was, why did one political party in the United States become this radical? Why did the, the institutions that were supposed to kind of be some guardrails around it, including the American media, which was not done at all the self-reflection it needs to do to, to, to wrestle with their role in the rise of Trump is impossible without the American media, right? Mm-hmm. And you mean not just Fox News, but the mainstream media? No, I mean mainstream media. Yeah. I went back and looked at birtherism, right? <laughs> Donald Trump was not just booked on Fox. He was on Good Morning America, the Today Show, CNN. Why? To, to, to have a racist conspiracy theory? Like, I mean, it's astonishing to go back and look what, what happened to birtherism. Then he starts running for president, same thing. We're going to air his rallies. We're going to not fact check him when he says crazy shit in interviews. We're, we're just going to go along for this ride, essentially. So to me, like, and, and then, yeah, Russia, so they just see this and they're like, well, th- we're gonna all we're gonna do is expose the weaknesses in American in the American system. So, in in 2016, what do we do? They 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 just came in behind like right wing conspiracy theories and just created a whole bunch of content about Hillary Clinton. She's sick, or she's a puppet, or she's corrupt, and they're just flooding right behind the bright parts of the world into people's social media accounts to manipulate algorithms to make sure that people are seeing certain things on Facebook. What are they taking advantage of? They're taking advantage of the existing right-wing media structure in this country. They're taking advantage of Facebook's profit model, which is the more things are clicked on and shared, the more profits that they make. And they take advantage of the media's obsession with gossip. So they're hacking a bunch of emails that are not at all newsworthy. And there's like New York Times stories every day about like some internal Clinton campaign email that is should not at all be newsworthy, right? So, so what Russia did, yes, they they tilted the scales. They may have swung the election to to Trump, but they they did so by taking advantage of this kind of rot that had taken place on top of a very methodical Republican Party project for over a decade to to manipulate. Because Republicans are looking out and they're saying, this is going to be a majority-minority country. It's, we can't govern this country unless we basically rewire the system of, of everything, voting, campaign finance, what have you, to, to, to enshrine minority power in this country. And, and that's what's happened. Did you find yourself, as I did, moving to the left over yes. the past four years? Yeah, I moved yeah. appreciably. What's interesting about me is that I moved to the left in my years in government, which is oh. not and usually for people in national security. If you look at me the last two years, I'm like normalizing relations with Cuba. I'm like, you know, throwing myself on train tracks for the Iran deal in part because I, I was deeply disturbed by the, the predominance of the war on terror in our foreign policy, but also because I saw this radicalization in the Republican Party. And I'm like, the establishment center is not calling this for what it is. And I was infuriated by it, like in part because they weren't calling out, you know, the the shit that was being thrown at me on like Benghazi, which nobody can yeah, even yeah. to this day explain what it was, right? Yeah. And and so I I moved to the left under Obama, and then yeah, the, the subsequent years I moved further to the left because I I think that this is an existential fight, and this is not a fight that it gets resolved by trying to craft 
compromise. Yeah. You know, somebody's going to win here, you know? And yeah. and what needs to happen is progressives need to to win. And and they need to win in this country and they need to be organized globally to win. And that's on both individual farm policies and and also on how our democracy works. That's pushed me further to the left. And but a lot of that's just tactics. It's like why did we not at the beginning of the Obama administration do something on voting rights, do something, you know, I mean, the, the the first thing that Biden should do is ram through voting rights, Puerto Rico state, if they want it, state of for, for DC and Puerto Rico, campaign finance reform, like just undo the electrical wiring damage has been done to our democracy, yeah, that's which right. shouldn't be a left right issue, you know, so some some things that are seen as left are actually, I think, just like small d democracy. I absolutely agree with you. And I, I don't think I knew the extent of the rot with our, I would never have called it that McConnell, uh, Graham, McCain, rest in peace, would have, I just thought that they would stop this, you know, and then Corker and Flake and even Ryan that I thought that they would, I just thought they'd stop it. And instead, you know, half of them fell in line and half of them dropped out you know, and, um, and no one except maybe Justin Amash has really done much more than be concerned. I mean, it's just seeing all those people, it's like, uh, you know, it's like all those tobacco executives all standing in line, lying about tobacco, or honestly, like seeing Nuremberg or some of the trials, like just how many people in a one party went insane, you know? Yeah. And that sort of does seem like what can happen here. And I had some fear. I don't think it's going to happen, but I had some fear that if Biden's elected, he will like glad hand with some of his old senators and and, and McConnell. And I just don't want to see it anymore. They should not be rehabilitated. Let's go back to something else from 2016. One of the disappointments that I wouldn't have had at the time with Obama, but that I increasingly had, was that he knuckled under to McConnell in not announcing the Russian interference and name and specifically that Russian interference for Trump. Um, it's just hard to imagine, you know, it, what would have happened. Maybe we would have been spared this. Maybe not. Yeah. But what was? I mean, just the appearance of impropriety or the appearance of partisanship. You know, it was just. We were so cautious then about, you know, kind of exerting our privilege as the party that had the Oval Office and seeming to be gentlemanly with the other side. And Obama, I don't know if you remember this piece in The the Atlantic, but was faulted for his absence of neurosis. Yeah, yeah. You know, that like he never thinks someone's following him. You know, he's like the, uh, you know, and um, and he wasn't neurotic at that point either. You know, he, he, I think he wouldn't have thought, and you know better, but he wouldn't have thought that McConnell would want to cover up that the Russians were interfering in our election on behalf of one candidate against the other. You'd be questioning his patriotism. You'd be questioning more than his patriotism. Like, you, you know, maybe he has other interests, you know? Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe Rusal is, st- is already in the works. But anyway, so tell me what you thought in that period. So th- this will sound like ass covering, but it's not. It's actually answering your question, which okay, is, okay. I was cut out of the, uh, that summer from, from the DNC hack through kind of September, there was a very small group of people meeting in the White House trying to figure out how to respond to Russian interference. And I was not in it. And I'll never forget the day that Susan Rice called me in her office and basically laid it all out to me. And it was right as the, the, the McConnell thing was breaking down. And the reason I wasn't in the room, though, is 
I think there were two reasons. It highlighted the problem with the response. And the problem with the response wasn't that I wasn't there. It's, it's what, the structural issue I'm going to identify. One is the people in the room were cyber people, like cybersecurity people and people who understood hacking, you know, and, and like the Russia experts, not communications people, right? So the Russian attack was seen as how do we protect the election infrastructure? How do we get to the bottom of this DNC hack? Who hacked, you know, like Colin Powell's email and all this stuff? And the information war, which was actually more consequential, wasn't getting attention because structurally it was being viewed as a cybersecurity issue, right? I think a, a secondary reason I was in the room is because I was a guy who, you know, was this villain and they wanted this you know, sense it was totally apolitical. And people like me or even Jen Psaki, who was the White House communications director, or Josh Ernest, who's a press secretary, were not in these discussions to kind of keep it out of the, the communications lane. This is about national security, and this is like the intelligence communities in, this, in these rooms, and that's it. And that's us bending over backwards to adhere to norms that the other side had tossed out. And I think those two things, that the, the, you know, the, this is a cyber threat and we need to be above reproach on this stuff limited what we could do. And I frankly don't know that it would have made a difference because frankly, if mm-hmm. if Barack Obama was going on and on about Russian interference all summer, like, I, I you know, knowing our politics, I, I don't necessarily think he would have reached like the people that were consuming Russian propaganda. But maybe but, if McConnell had, <laughs> you know. Well, McConnell, so then, yeah, then the McConnell thing, I, you know, after Merrick Garland, like the idea that McConnell had any there was any line he wouldn't cross was clear to me. Um, Mm, But -hmm. you're right. I mean, I I do, there was, I think a genuine surprise among some in the white house that like he didn't sign that statement. And so that by the time it kind of came out, it was, and then nobody wanted to put their name on it. You know, the, the intelligence community put it out from them. Yeah. This is tied to something else about Obama. That's interesting that I think because, you know, I always tell people it's like, I felt like I was working for Jackie Robinson, right? Hmm. Like Jackie Robinson had to play baseball perfectly. He had to like, he couldn't take the bait. He was going to be not only a better player than anybody else, but he was going to put his head down and they were going to heckle him. He's not going to pay attention. He's not going to spike people. He's not going to play dirty. Mm-hmm. Obama went above and beyond, I think. Yeah. And it was like, uh, you know, Tani C. Coates had a line that I'm I'm not going to fully remember now, but it, basically something around like, you know, walking a tightrope on ice or something like that. But like Barack Obama was so non-scandalous, you know. Yes. I, I, I think he he integrated this view that as the first black president, he could not do anything that was anti-institutional or, or that violated norms, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so he was always the guy who was going to stick to the way that everybody should act. And so he he did it by the book on Russia. He did what you sh- are supposed to do, which is separate it from politics, brief it to Congress, let the intelligence community take the lead, because that's how our system is supposed to function. And the challenge is when one half of the system have become completely radicalized lunatics who are willing to subjugate the American national interest to Vladimir Putin's in order to win an election, including John McCain and Lindsey Graham, not just Mitch McConnell, all of them, mm-hmm. for whatever reasons they each individually had to do that, then playing it by the book doesn't work, you know, and that that's the, the difficulty. I mean, that is brilliantly put. I am so glad to have had you on the show, Ben. It's like exceeded my greatest expectations for talking to you. And I hope we'll do this again sometime. 
Ben Rhodes, thanks again for being here. Thanks, great talking. Ben Rhodes is the host of Pod Save the World and the new podcast, Missing America. He's also the author of the forthcoming The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama administration. So that's it for today's show. What'd you think? Give us a healthy, robust rating on your podcast app and then come to us on Twitter. Come at us on Twitter if you want. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then, come on, just join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first week, the first month, no, the first year. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.